right, let's open your Bibles, please, to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. I'll open mine with you. Matthew, chapter 5. Today, June 30, if we are uh, concluding the, the, the passage, not in Matthew by any means, but we are concluding the passage uh, in Matthew, chapter 5, that began in verse 17. That's where in Matthew's organization of Jesus' words, we begin with, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Somebody said fulfill. And then he, and he concludes with this statement in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So his audience would have heard that and been shocked of course, because the scribes and the Pharisees would have been, like it or lump it, the, the model, the example of righteousness. Their lives, their interpretation of the law, etc. In fact, they were the ones who decided whether or not anybody else was righteous. Now, Jesus is going to say, he said, but your righteousness has to exceed theirs. And now, you and I, if you've been around, we've been on this for a few weeks now, right? A couple of months, I suppose. But if we're listening to this as a first audience, then we, we, re, we react in almost shock and we say, what? How can this be? How can my righteousness surpass theirs? And so we keep listening. So everybody say, we keep listening. So we keep listening and now Jesus, then Jesus begins to give examples. He pulls examples from the Old Testament or from our Old Testament, from their Bible, from the Torah, from the Law and the Prophets. He pulls examples of expressions or commands that were understood that and that had perhaps been become misunderstood they had become practiced wrongly or clumsily because they were misunderstood but jesus intention is to reveal their true righteousness and that it, this is the righteousness that he brings and that he calls his disciples to walk in the calling of every follower of jesus is righteousness everybody said amen yeah, we, that was horrible. Uh, righteousness is the goal and the calling of every follower of Jesus. Amen. Righteousness is not the hard life. It is the good life, right? It absolutely is. It's not a burden. It is a blessing. Absolutely. And rightness is better than wrongness. So it's all better. Jesus, the same Jesus who says, I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly, is the same Jesus that says, your righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. They are not competing terms. They are complementary. Righteousness is really, really good. So what he's going to do now is he's going to, he's actually, what, if we fast forward till today, what we see is that Jesus has displaced, replaced the model, the example of righteousness with something far more significant. And that's what we're going to, we, he's been building that and he's going to conclude that. He's going to crescendo that today. And we should just go, we should have all those mind blow emojis when we're done. Going, oh my goodness, that's what he means. And this is what we've been called to and how we've been empowered to live. So here we go. We're going to start at verse 43 today and read through verse 48. It's one of the longer passages. Jesus has more to say, more examples. It's also exceedingly important that we remember that what we're about to hear is not intended to live 
is not intended to be, to be lived by people who are not followers of Jesus, who have not been brought into vital contact with the Spirit. This is a new way of living that is supplied to us. We are enabled to live this way and expected to live this way because of the living, breathing, the power of the Holy Spirit transforming our lives. This is what Spirit-filled people live like. Here we go. Verse 43, you have heard, this is how he began all, all, now this is the sixth one, but all six of these, of these statements. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. How many have heard that? Four of you have? Good. That's good. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Don't say amen. This, I never know with this crowd. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, so that, and this, this really serves, as I shouldn't tell you this, but this really serves as an axis to this teaching. It's going to spin on this passage and then come back to it. But this is important. I'll just tell you a heads up. This, is going, this particular idea is going to kaboom today and then become increasingly more uh, important and applied as we walk through this teaching on righteousness and kingdom living throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Here we go, back to verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. I can't, I can't help it. I'm too excited. How many of you have already figured it out? Who, what, who, what example is replacing and displacing the scribes and the Pharisees? Did you figure it out yet? We like Jesus, but, and that's always a good answer. But in this case, he is pointing us to our heavenly father. He is saying, look, if your righteousness is not measured by or determined by the scribes and the Pharisees, it's determined by and measured by, you are to emulate your father in heaven. Woo! Here we go. So that, live this way, so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Father who is in heaven, for he causes, for this is how he lives, what does he do? What does he do? He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I'll stop right there and say, how many of you grew up in the Northwest? Anybody? If you grew up in, if you grew up in, in the Northwest and in church, you may be like me and have interpreted, this was usually a phrase, this was a bumper sticker phrase that we used when we said, well, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, we, we thought, well, that means bad things happen to everybody. Because we didn't like the rain. It was too much rain. Well, it sends rain on everybody, I guess. It's going to be bad. But if you're a first century person in Palestine, rain is a good thing. So he's not saying, well, he gives sun, sun to some people and rain to others. He's, this is an expression of God's goodness. Somebody say goodness. All right, here we go. That was, we'll get there. Verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Your Bible, you might have a King James that might say publicans. I'm warning you, do not put a re in front of that. <laughs> I'll see you right there, Jesus. He don't like them republicans. No, it's not even close to the same. Okay, these, uh, at least it shouldn't be because these people are supposed to, these are take people that take taxes. We don't like that. Okay, uh, it, verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, what 
are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles <gasps> gasp do the same? If I'm a first century Jew living in Palestine, Jesus almost just said a cuss word. Gentiles <gasps> gasp. Therefore, you are to be perfect, here it is, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Oh. Wow. That's it. He has now wrapped it up. He has connected, verse 17, verse 20, verse uh, uh, 40, 46 and 47. Boom, here it is. It's all wrapped up. Jesus is drawing our attention to our heavenly Father and saying, I'll cut to the chase here. Here's a little, little bit of a, of a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Righteousness is imitating your heavenly Father. Righteousness is goodness because God is good. Come back to the text. Here we go. Verse 43 is the context where it sounds like the, what we hear this is uh, the context, verse 43, love some and hate others. Love your neighbor, hate everybody else. And that's what, apparently that had, they had heard that, that being said. Now, where had they heard that? The first part, love your neighbor, was uh, we find that in many, many places, but we find it in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19 and verse 18, where this is the, where the law is being uh, written down. They're in, they're in the book of Exodus historically. They're at Sinai, and then Leviticus happens in the middle of Exodus. And here they get this command, but this is important. You shall not avenge or hold a grudge, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just all say it out loud. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then it's the, the last phrase, the last part of that is, I am the Lord. Now, that's, a, that's more than just a, 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 a punctuation mark at the end of the command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. He is giving that command and he is giving that command to be understood and applied with an awareness of God. This is important. We'll get to it in just a second. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So I am, we're supposed to relate to one another, but we are to do so aware of or with reverence toward the Lord. That make sense? So there's the command. Now, here's, let's just flesh that out a little bit. All by itself, that command. Uh, when we, we hear about it later in gospel stories as Jesus is interacting with people, we hear that this command, all by itself, you love your neighbor as yourself, is called the second greatest commandment. So we're talking about a big deal today. Everybody say big deal, okay? All by itself, love your neighbor as yourself. All, all by itself, it, is a, it powerfully governs human behavior for us to understand that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. It is a command that we actually love our neighbor in a way that we ourselves would want to be loved. It is not just having some sort of warm feeling toward our neighbor, but this means to act or to do or to be good to our neighbor in a way that we would want someone to be good to us. This is where we pick it up later, that we would call the golden rule, Luke 6.31, treat others, talking about behavior, treat others the way you want them to treat you. To love our neighbor is to treat them and act toward them with good will. But, as we said just a second ago, this by itself is not complete without that divine locus, without being centered with an awareness of God. Otherwise, we risk humanistic and egocentric and even carnal behavior. 
if I, if, I, if I reject any knowledge of or reverence toward God, then I, then I decide what's good or bad. I decide what's right and wrong. I bite the apple. I say I'm righteous. And, and, and my independent governance decides how I should treat you. There's no, there's no standard. So if I don't want to be told no, I won't tell anybody else no. If I want to indulge in recklessness or violence or licentiousness, why, you go ahead and do. Well, let's all just get in the party. See, without, without some sort of divine governor, even this by itself can lead to chaos, a total train wreck. So I relate to you, like, like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 when he's talking about the spirit-filled life and the family, he says, he says uh, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So out of reverence, it is my reverence for God that governs my interaction with you. I'm going to treat you the way I would like you to treat me out of reverence for God. Which means, what am I going to do? If you're my neighbor, and we're still talking about neighbor here, we haven't got to the correction. But if you're my neighbor, that means I'm going to assume the best. I'm going to be positive. I'm not going to micromanage you according to my expectations. This is why we talk about what, imitating or reverencing God. God is the author of free will. He is the author of free will, and He has given you... And he, how many know that God, God lets you, he, makes, he lets you make your own choices? He does. I, we, he will hold us accountable for those choices, but he lets us make them. And I wish sometimes he wouldn't. Honestly, but God is not a Sith Lord. His job is he's not out to restrict the freedom of the galaxy, right? And to bring order, okay? That's, he's the author of free will. So the more you and I want to go in there and micromanage other people's free will, the less like God we are. So I want to treat you the way I want to be treated. It means giving you, a, giving you the, the uh, respecting you enough to make your choice. That doesn't mean I agree with it. God doesn't endorse our choices. He lets us make them. So this idea, I'm going to love my neighbor. And we get that. And we're we're Jesus' audience. We're nodding along. We get that. Yes, we've heard that. Love love my neighbor. But then we we feel like we have permission. If I I only, ha-ha, only. It went from love your neighbor to only love your neighbor. Love my neighbor, and I get to hate everyone else. Now, if you're looking, for, if you're looking for where that where that is in the Old Testament, hate your enemy. You won't find it. It's not in the Bible. It, they, they, it's not anywhere prescribed in Scripture to hate our enemy. So, where in the world, where in the world did they come up with that? Well, it has to be extrapolated. It has to be. You have to take from over here and take from over here and kind of add it up and come up with something and. And we, there's texts in the scripture. The psalmist, at one point, the psalmist says, uh, Psalm 139, he, he's worshiping the Lord. And he says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. So then you and I can take that, proof text that, and say, here we go. We're supposed to hate our enemies. Got it. With, and of course, that's not at all the intent of what David is saying. First of all, do you remember else where Jesus says to his followers that he says you're supposed to hate your mom and dad if you want to follow me? 
right? We understand what Jesus meant, and they understood. I mean, it was shocking, but there's no way Jesus wants anybody to hate their mama. Okay? What he wants is, in comparison to your radical and total devotion to him, there is no comparison to anybody else. They understood that. That is the truth. And in the same way, the psalmist is trying to lift up his voice to God. He's saying, Lord, I lie. You're, so, you're the best. I love you so much. And I, he has such, a, he has such a, a genuine de- detesting feeling for anybody who would blaspheme God. And so it really is. He's trying to worship God. It's a poetic expression. He is not therein endorsing hating people. Right? Okay, so hang on. Just so that's what we're saying here. Now, but the problem became, like we said earlier, was they, as how they defined neighbor. Now, and we'll read how later on in, in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus uh, addresses that question. It actually, because the guy says, ah, who's my neighbor? That wasn't a random argument that, that showed up one day. That idea of who is my neighbor was a part of first century Judaism thinking. I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but then I get out of having to love people if I can more carefully define who my neighbor is and who they are not. So if someone's not my neighbor, then that, and to them, uh, anybody who was a non-Israelite was not a neighbor. Anybody who oppressed them was not their neighbor. Anybody who acted with ill will toward them was not their neighbor. Anybody who had an unclean lifestyle was not their neighbor, and therefore they had permission or the opportunity or even the obligation to hate them. Now that is not prescribed in the text, in the Bible, anywhere at all. But it does remind us that it is human nature to oftentimes detest or reject that which we feel is too different. But that's not the intent of the law. That is not righteousness at all. So how does Jesus meet and correct that mindset? Here's what he says. But I say to you, someone say it with me out loud. But I say to you, love your enemies. (laughs) Whoa, whoa. Oh, see, now I know 2,000 years and and, uh, familiarity with Scripture later, nobody in the room is getting their head blown. But if you were listening to Jesus say that, you would have thought, ah, forget it, I'm out. Love your enemies. You've got to feel the weight of what he just said. Everybody say it out loud again, love your enemy. enemy. What were they familiar with? Love your enemy. But Jesus said, love your enemy. Oh, my goodness. See, we've been quoting Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10 every week as we've gone through this. And Paul understood. Paul brings us back to that. Let's, let's read it again. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this one decree. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is true. 100% true. And then he says, love does no wrong to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, again, so there's the law in its purity and its fulfillment, and it's a good thing. But if I redefine who my neighbor is, then I can skirt around that. And Jesus just nukes their definition of neighbor. The correction when they, for, for wrong and sinful treatment, the correction when we are met with unrighteous treatment from others is to love them. 
it, here's what Jesus, remember he argues from the, to the extreme and then by doing so he includes everything before that, right? If I am, so he's, when Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies, you misunderstood, you misunderstood the law. He says, you love your enemies. If I am to, and my, my enemy represents the people who are the, they're the furthest away from me, the furthest away from someone that I want to embrace or to love or show kindness to. But Jesus said, even those who are furthest away, who are, represent those who are in the furthest outside of your, your reach, you love them. And if you love the people way out here, you love that you get to, that love encompasses and includes everybody in between so he's not just saying love only your neighbor or I mean or love only your enemy or love them uniquely but he's saying love must extend this kind of love must extend all the way to an enemy Amen. now an enemy in this context is not someone who you just got into a fight with on social media or, once again, or honked the wrong way at you. Boy, uh, that happened to me again. Even after I said it last week, somebody honked at me in a very unkind way, and I, I blessed them. I genuinely did because I didn't want to be a hypocrite. But, uh, but an enemy in this context is someone who is acting with ill will, malice, harshness. Almost a, the, the context is this person is like attacking you. Okay, so that's who we're talking about. So what Jesus is saying, and when he tells us to love even our enemy and then back this way and everybody in between, Jesus has now given us the most comprehensive governor of human interaction. This is the most influential thing to say. This is the most life-giving. This calls for a proactive approach toward all people. It calls for me to initiate goodness and practice goodness irrespective of how people are treating me. Wow. Well, well we understand that what he's saying, but let's, let's, before people start writing down questions and emailing me, we say, what does he mean by, what does Jesus mean by love? Because it's both, it's different than you think, but it's also probably even harder than you think, okay? What does he mean by love? Well, of course, what he means by love is it's more than a feeling, okay? Jesus uses this word. There, there are several words in the Greek for love. Many of you know that. Uh, and, and some of them have to do with uh, family love and marital love and brotherly love. And he uses different, different words. And the word that he uses, he uses on purpose. He does not use a word that describes familial love. Come here, sweetheart. So this is my daughter. I, I love Emily. Okay? Jesus does not, in this passage, Jesus did not tell his disciples that they were to love their enemies with the, using the same kind of love that I have for Emily. First of all, that's patently ridiculous. It's absurd. It really is. It's absurd to think, well, I'm going to have the same sort of deep, affection, fatherly affection for perhaps a total stranger or someone mistreating me as I feel toward Emily. First of all, that, that's blasphemy. The Lord has designed and given a special, this, she's, she, she deserves something unique. The Lord doesn't want me to, 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 to prostitute an affection 
that, de that is deserved only for her. Does that make sense? But furthermore, guess when I started loving Emily? Before she was born. Before I saw her face. Before I, before I did any of that. I, 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 probably before this moment, but I do remember that moment. I loved her when I heard her mother mention her name. We were lying, uh, retreating in the, in the dark hours of the evening, going through different names, and finally she said, what about Emily Rose? And that was it. I jumped. I lived, this is not a joke. I jumped out of bed. Jumped out of bed and danced around, spun around. I said, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. And from that moment, I have adored her with a love that can't be measured. Now, I'm not trying to just get sappy on here. I'm trying, they're, they're, you see, I, that was easy. That love is biological. It is psychological. There, there are, uh, you know, it's not, I don't, I'm not a Freudian, but it is parental. I mean, I am, I, am, I am biologically in every way engineered to love her fiercely. I don't have to try. I don't. I'm thankful she doesn't make me have to try either. But I don't even have to try. It's not just because she's wonderful. I'm engineered to. She could actually be slightly less wonderful than she is. No, she couldn't. But even if she were slightly less wonderful, I would still love her. I can't help it. There's nothing noble about that. I love this one. <laughs> I, but when my first love for this one, the first, the first, the first initial affection I had for lovely Mrs. Dab is, should be credited entirely to dopamine. That is the chemical in your brain, dopamine, that says, I think I have fallen in love. <laughs> it makes you do dumb things. But it is, you just fall into it. You can't take credit for dopamine. There's nothing noble about that. No one, well, I, I saw me a pretty girl. No, there's nothing noble about that. And I am not going to share the love I have and share with my wife with anyone else. For lots of good reasons. I would also lose my job. Are you feeling me here? Jesus isn't saying love your enemy like you love your kid or love your spouse or even like you love your siblings. There's nothing noble about that. I mean, even if your siblings drive you up the wall, you still will punch somebody who messes with them. You should. There's lots of amening in the room. Lots of punching. There was lots of like everybody's looking to punch somebody today. Yeah. <coughs> the preceding statement was not an endorsement of violence. Um, <coughs> Jesus uses a different word, and it's a word that you all know, or many of you have heard, but it's important that you understand, or we understand together, what word to use and why. He uses the word agape. And we all hear that, oh, yeah, that's that, that's that hippie love. That's that warm, fuzzy, just, oh, man, agape love. It's just agape. It's just unconditional. It's just like, bleh. No. Agape love is unconditional. That means, what does that mean? That means love that you choose to exercise regardless of the conditions in front of you. Amen. That is noble. 
That is hard. Agape love happens even if I don't feel like it. Agape love happens if I particularly don't want to feel like it. The righteousness that the disciples of Jesus are called to exercise, this righteousness that practices goodness, agape is acting with goodwill, goodness toward another. It doesn't require warm feelings. It can even have hurt feelings. It can have deeply hurt feelings. It can be, it can be afraid. I know perfect love casts out all fear. Just roll with it. It can be, John, I love you. I don't really, I'm not terribly afraid of you. You are mildly intimidating and very handsome, but. <laughs> but if John is a Roman soldier who has in the past hurt or, 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 or oppressed me in some way, and his very presence causes just chemical reactions in my body that I, I'm, I, no matter how brave a face I try to put on, I'm, I'm afraid of what he might do. Agape can still work. I can be afraid of what he might do to me, but still act with goodwill toward him. That's, that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Love people regardless of the circumstance or the antecedent or their behavior toward you, even if they are your enemy, even if they act with ill will toward you, you act with benevolence toward them. You know what? He's not actually asking you or requiring you to have warm fuzzies toward them. It's not even relevant. He's telling you to, to act with goodness toward them. That's love. That's righteousness. Love is good and does what is good according to and because of the goodness of God. Our goodness toward others must have as its model and its goal the goodness of God. And that means that there are times that, that that goodness can act to protect someone and even to correct someone. I can, I can act to protect and to correct, not out of a desire to hurt anyone or to harm anyone, but out of a desire to honor God. So I can stand up for what's right. I can stand up against what is wrong. I can... Tell someone, I think what you're doing is wrong and I think you should stop. And I cannot, well, I could be, but I am not guilty of hate. I'm guilty of agape. Jesus' correction, then, is to tell his disciples to love their enemies, and if they're enemies, then everybody in between. The King James Version uses a different, a different textual tradition, so it includes a few more lines that are elsewhere in Scripture, so they're totally healthy, but I do like them today because they give a little more traction to this idea of love your enemies. It, right, it, it moves on from what might sound like just a feeling to some specific behavior. So listen to the so this, this textual tradition says, love your enemies, bless those that curse you. 
So the idea is I'm being cursed or I'm being reviled and I bless. Now that's everywhere else in Scripture. We read that time and again, bless those that curse you. But So to return blessed words or kind words for harsh words. Do good to those that hate you. Do good. You don't have to feel good toward them. And I'm not, you understand what I'm saying? That's because people, all, too many times, they, they either, they think that if they don't feel some warm fuzzy, they feel guilty. Doesn't matter if you don't feel warm fuzzy, you can still decide to do. That's righteousness. And furthermore, just saying to someone in church, well, you know, I love them, but, and then saying something ungood, unkind, untoward, that's not love either. I love you, but, no, you don't. Just, This love is benevolent even in the midst of or even in the face of. Then he says, the last part of the correction that we have in Matthew today is, he says, pray for those who persecute you. This last part, pray for those who persecute, that that gives us a real sense of focus, but it it also enables all of this action to happen. What do you mean by that, Dav? I mean that, number one, according to what Jesus is saying here in the context, Prayer is the highest good that you can do for someone else. And prayer is also the best means of fostering or cultivating goodwill toward someone else. Prayer is the best way. If you're you're having a hard time developing goodwill, pray. Pray for them. Don't Don't pray, God, get them. God swat him. God, I really hope you get even with so-and-so. You know what? You're missing it, okay? But genuinely, someone say genuinely. Genuinely pray. And I'm not saying that you have to, but just know. If you lean into what that you know the will of God, you know the nature of God, lean into his heart. Someone say lean into his heart. Lean into his heart. Lean into what you know about the Scripture. What what does Scripture say about God and his will and his will toward people and his heart? Lean into that and then in light of that, begin to pray for someone. And here's the deal. I can begin to... Remember John? He's a big, mean Roman soldier. Take my hand. Okay? Big, mean John. See, all this... Instead, I want to pray for him. And as I pray for him and I'm leaning into the heart of God toward him... I began to see that perhaps some of his behavior, some of that harshness, some of that broken, that, that anger toward me and that oppression toward me, I began to see that this guy is actually not my enemy, but he's trapped behind enemy lines. He's under another influence. He's under another oppression. There's something on him harassing him, hurting him. He's been broken. He's been harmed. He's got, he is, there's, there's a whole world of darkness that's festering around him. And now I am not so much afraid of him, but I have compassion toward him. Now you can, now you can come at me with a knife and I'm going to be like, David Wilkerson said, you can, you can bring that knife at me. You can cut me in a thousand pieces, but every single one of them will say that I love you. And here's a neat trick. If that works for enemies, you can try it on spouses. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You might try that and figure out that your spouse did not marry you for the sole purpose of destroying your life. They're not playing the long game of sabotage. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to marry that guy. I'm going to ruin his life for the next 25 years. (laughs) Right? Yeah, 
you might think, oh, I was wrong about that. I might be able to start giving thanks. The last thing I'll say about that part is that love and pray, both of those verbs are in the, the present imperative voice. Now, if you like grammar, that's a good thing to know. They're in the present imperative voice. What that communicates to the original reader is that, that Jesus believes it is urgent and that we pray constantly for those who behave like an enemy toward us. It is an, there's a, it, this is a matter of urgency and constancy. What's the reason? Why do we do all this? I know it's, I know it's 1229, but now we're going to land this thing. What's the reason for this? Again, is so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Not that by loving people or acting with goodwill toward them or praying for them, doesn't, doesn't, we don't earn sonship. We don't achieve it. We prove it. We prove that we belong to our heavenly Father by acting like Him. And how does He act? Jesus tells us how He acts. He says God demonstrates His love by doing good, by causing the sun to shine, by causing the rain to fall on only those who deserve it. Only those who, are, have, who have paid their dues or followed all at least nine out of the ten commandments, they get sunshine. Everybody else, darkness. No, when He sends rain... He sends rain on Emily the perfect and John the big meanie. If they're neighbors, they both get the same rain. How does God show his love? Now, ultimately, he does it through sending his son. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet steeped and committed to our sin, He sent His Son as a sacrifice for our sin. Do good to them that despitefully use and blaspheme you and disobey you and grieve you. That's what He did. By the way, this, this idea that God is good because he, he is good to us because He is good and not because we are good. He is good to us because He is good and not because we are good. That should help all, any of us, whoever would hesitate and wonder whether or not you are good enough that He would be good to you or be good through you. Before you hesitate, asking God for something good or believing or hoping that God might use you to do something good for someone else, know that it's not conditioned upon your goodness but upon His. He's so generous. He's got more than enough. And yet, this is, I mean, just think about God. The, God, the one who cannot abide sin, is good to sinners, and yet He still will hold sinners accountable. Even it's God, in fact God's goodness. We 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 can see this in some of the sermons of Paul in the book of Acts. God's goodness is intentionally present and active to be a witness against sin. Paul will say, "You have God has overlooked your sin, but you have sinned. But God has left Himself a witness by sending you sunshine and rain and crops. It's God, God's goodness keeps calling people to His to, to Him. By, he reveals Himself by His goodness. Wow." 
And then Jesus challenges us by saying, hey, your job is to be different. (laughs) Essentially, he's going to say this, you need to be gooder than everybody else. What makes you a follower of Jesus? That you're gooder. (sighs) It's fun to say bad grammar. Uh, Jesus says in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward is there? Don't tax collectors do that. Uh, in other words, your righteousness should not, be, should, not, should not reflect, it should initiate. Your goodness should be, you should initiate that and not wait to respond. This is Matthew's second use of the word reward in the whole book. But this idea that there is reward for believers will increase throughout the text. We'll see it even more in, in chapter 6. There's a lot of references to it, so we'll, we'll, we'll look into that more later. But you need to know that there, there, that reward is present in Scripture, that God is looking to reward you, and He wants you to understand and believe that His reward for, your, for you or toward you should be a good motivator in your life. He wants to motivate you by this promise of reward. Specifically this morning, when it feels unnatural to be good to someone or to love someone like that, when it feels unnatural, when it feels uncomfortable, when your goodness toward others is unrequited, know this, it will not go unrewarded. Heaven records and heaven rewards. There is a reward for the life of love. But moreover, the emphasis here is this. The disciple is supposed to be different, extraordinarily different. Anybody can be good to those who are good to them. He says even the tax collectors. Tax collectors were, 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 were Jewish people who were employed by Rome. They were many times corrupt. They took too much money. They got rich. They oppressed. They were corrupt, and they were hated. And Jesus says, even the people you hate. Oh, actually what he says is even the people you've defined as an enemy are acting just as good as you are. You must be different. Someone say different. You must be different. Then he says, if you greet those who greet you. That's not the, he's not endorsing uh, the small talk we engage in. This is a, uh, this is a euphemism, a first century Jewish expression. To The rabbis taught that you, we were to, that every, you were to receive every person cheerfully. A greeting wasn't just yo or what's up or a guy nod. You ever seen a guy do that? Well, if you're, if you're, if you're a gal, there's a thing called a guy nod. You can study it. Guys, you know, you'll do it. You see a guy, you don't know the guy. You've never seen this guy, but you, you do one of these. The guy does it back. Somehow, pri- our primate things, we've, 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 uh, ugh, me too. I don't know what that is. But, that's, but it's more than a guy nod. It's more than a what's up. It's more than a peace sign that my daughter gives me coming and going in the house. It is an expression of goodwill. It literally is to, to encounter someone freshly and to bless them, to wish them goodwill, and to greet them with your face first. To a refreshing, to smile at them and want them and want goodwill toward their life. It really is that. I mean, that's like super specific. But Jesus is saying, yeah, act like that even to people who don't like you. What? Yeah. The idea is the disciple of Jesus is to be radically, extraordinarily different. Our goodness makes us different. And that's where we get to finally verse 48. Imitating, we are righteousness is imitating God. There, you are to be perfect, even as your heavenly fathers. Ah, oh, there's the example. Not scribes and Pharisees, not tax collectors, not Gentiles. My Father in heaven is my example. Ah, oh, and how is He righteous? He is good. 
So righteousness is goodness because God is good. Righteousness is goodness because God is good. Righteousness means that we love well because our Heavenly Father does. That is real righteousness. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. I want to pray for you this morning. I really feel like we've, we've established the challenge today is that when Jesus calls us to love our enemies, He's calling us to act benevolently, kindly, good toward those who aren't acting good toward us. Out of reverence for God, according to God's goodness, which sometimes means having boundaries and making challenges and corrections, all of that is fine, but never out of harshness or a desire to hurt or to harm anybody. Acting with goodwill, even when we don't feel like it, ah, there's discipleship. All of that really has to come back to, as Jesus said, He brings us back to our attention, our focus on our Heavenly Father. And if you don't don't have this deep-seated, joyful conviction that God is good, you may have less unction, less oomph, less readiness to be good or do good. But the more deeply you believe that God is good, then the more ready you will be to believe that He wants to be good to you and that He wants to be good through you. I'd like to close today just by celebrating the goodness of God together. So let's all stand together. Let's stand. I want to sing, God is so good. I want to do a one-click faster than even we did first service. Just rejoice. Just celebrate now. Lean into declare that God is good. Here we go.